Glad to be with you all uh, this morning. Uh, for those of y'all that don't know me, I'm John. I'm a member at the church and a happy one. Um, if you would, uh, turn with me to Genesis chapter 45. Genesis chapter 45. Um, and I would uh, say right now, I would love it if inside my heart and my soul, uh, I had the brevity of Pastor Tim uh, when I was up here, but unfortunately I don't. But let the record state, it's 1125 when I'm starting, all right? So at 12 o'clock when the internal clock inside of your heart goes off and you start to look back at the time and you're like, yo, he's been up there forever, just remember, it's 1125 right now, okay? Uh, Genesis chapter 45, starting in verse 1, uh, I'm going to read to verse 8, and it says this. Uh, Joseph could no longer keep his composure in front of all of his attendants. So he called out, send everyone away from me. No one was with him when he revealed his identity to his brothers. But he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard it, and also Pharaoh's household heard it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But they couldn't answer him because they were terrified in his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, please come near me. And they came near. I am Joseph, your brother, he said, the one you sold into Egypt. And now don't be grieved or angry with yourselves for selling me here because God sent me ahead of you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there will be five more years without plowing or harvesting. God sent me ahead of you to establish you as a remnant within the land and to keep you alive with a great deliverance. Therefore, it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh, Lord of his entire household and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Let's pray. Um, our Father, we thank you for being the divine author, not just of history in general, but our stories specifically, Father. When we find ourselves in the middle of the rising tension or the climaxes in our life, would you remind us, Lord, uh, that you still have the pen in your hand, Father. I pray that you would make us those that are utterly grateful to be in the story that you're writing. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Why don't y'all take your seats? You know, um, as grateful as we are for the lives that we live, we all find ourselves in a place where we want to move past our pasts. All right, it's the end of the year, so we've got five more weeks left of the small talk that starts with, can you believe how quick 2023 has gone by, right, as we look on to 2024. And um, 2024 is going to be a new year with new hopes and new dreams, fresh starts, new opportunities. Uh, but for better or worse, we're still going to be surrounded uh, by the same old people, the same old family members. 
I know that some of us here have a resolution to leave certain people in 2023, uh, but I want you to know they still have your home address, they still got your phone number, they're still connected to you on social media. As much as you want to, um, you can't. Relationships are frustrating. We live in frustrating times. Although we all want to move past our past, we realize that it is very, very hard to move past our past. Um, the passage of time does not equal progress, okay? Time heals all wounds. Y'all have heard that before? Um, whoever told you that lied to your face. That, that is not actually how things work. Time doesn't heal all wounds. When it comes to the difficulty with moving past our past, I think it's hard for two reasons. Because one, we are either stuck in our pasts, or two, as much as we try to move past them, we get sucked back into our past. Here's what I mean by being stuck um, in our past. Charles Dickens uh, il il illustrates this in his book, Great Expectations. There's this lady, Miss Havisham, and she's supposed to be getting married. And at 8.40 a.m. on the day that she's uh, getting dressed, she's got one shoe on, she gets notice that her fiance has canceled the wedding. And so at that point, um, she stops all the clocks in her house. She lives in that same dress for 20 years. Keeps one shoe on because that's all she had on when she was married. She even goes so far as to adopt a daughter, and she keeps her daughter from getting married because of the pain that she felt. It sounds silly, but it's descriptive. Uh, some of the greatest truths of how humans worked work uh, or locked away in fiction. You may know somebody like her. Or maybe you are somebody like her. Hurt, offended, belittled, bitter, and you live presently with the shame and the frustrations that although time moves on, so often we don't move forward. You've become an expert in nursing grudges. You've learned that uh, nursing grudges have absolutely nothing to do with what you say out loud. Nursing grudges are often nonverbal. The way that you suck your teeth when that person walks into the room. The way your shoulders tense up. The way that you roll your eyes. You hold on to this Fairness, that deep down inside, you've realized, you've stumbled upon the truth um, that unforgiveness is fair. It is saying, no, I was really hurt and offended by somebody, and until they make it right, they do not deserve the free gift of my love and affection. That is fair. And what you end up doing in nursing a grudge is um, you scratch a real emotional itch that brings relief now, uh, but it's going to leave a lasting scar. We feel stuck. 
We know it's unpleasant to nurse a grudge, but it's natural. We, we, we can't not do it. It feels like a reflex. Maybe you're not stuck in the past. Maybe you get sucked back into the past. You do your best to try to ignore things. You say that you've let it go. You say it's not a big deal. You say we're all good, but do you know the hallmark of being able to know if you've really forgiven somebody or moved past an offense? It's how short your fuse is with people that don't do that much to you. That often when you've nursed this grudge, it's like somebody else pulled back a rubber band and you let it loose on anybody that rubs you the wrong way. That you have problems with all men because of what your father did. You get frustrated. You have a short fuse with your kids because of the way that your parents treated you. You go off uh, on innocent, meaning people because of experiences that you've had uh, with people of their race that may have been racist. You're frustrated with your boyfriend or your girlfriend because of past hurts. You have a short fuse with your pastor because of past church hurts. And even though you say it's fine and it's all good, you constantly get sucked back in. Um, Pain and hurt and offense and trauma um, are like good hunting dogs. You can try to drop them off in whatever year that you want to, but they are going to find their way right back to your front doorstep. So whether it's active, something that you've done, or passive, something that's been done to you, or something that you feel like God has allowed to you, We have to deal with our pasts because time doesn't fix those wounds. So I want to talk today about how to get unstuck or not get sucked back in, what it looks like to really move past our past when real wrongs and offenses have been done to us. And that's why we're spending our time in Genesis chapter 45. I know I started to read in verse 1. And so for those that may be unfamiliar with the context, Here is the context. Um, There is this guy, Joseph. Joseph lives in um, this land. His dad's name is Jacob, one of the twins of Isaac, who was the son of the father of the Christian faith, Abraham. Joseph grows up, um, and his dad, right, his story could have been written today, right? Joseph grows up. His dad has 13 kids by four baby mamas, all right? Joseph is riding the school bus to school with 13 people that don't live in the same household, but everybody got the same face, right? So Joseph lives this life, and he's the favorite of his father. His father sends him one day to go check in on his brothers. His brothers have built up so much frustration with him that their first thought is, let's kill him. And then the next thought is, hey, let's not kill him. Let's make a killing off of him. So they... uh, throw him down into a pit, they sell him into slavery. Um, In the next 13 years 
of Joseph's life, like you thought 2023 was bad for you, Joseph has 13 bad years in a row. None of it is his fault. Sold into slavery. Prospers as a slave. Falsely accused of wrong with somebody else's wife. Is thrown into jail. Prospers in jail to the point where he helps set somebody free. And the person that he helps set free, the only thing that he says is, don't forget about me. And you know what the dude did? He forgot about him. And now, Joseph has risen to the top. He's in power, and his brothers find themselves in famine, in need. The people that did him the most wrong have the greatest need of him. They don't recognize him. Joseph is in the position that you fantasize about with the people that you hold a grudge against. In verse 3, Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But they couldn't answer him because they were terrified in his presence. Then he's going to say these next words, the words that you fantasized about saying. Come here. Come here. But he doesn't say it to intimidate them. He says it as an invitation into forgiveness as someone that's moved past his past. I think one of the things that we see in the text here is that when it comes to the frustrations in our life, especially the ones interpersonally that have been done to us, uh, forgiveness is really the only way for us to move forward. But the question is, how do you forgive? If you're ever going to forgive, if you're ever going to get unstuck, you've got to remember these two things. You've got to remember God's part in your story and your place in his. You have to remember God's part in your story and your place in his. If you're ever going to move forward through frustration into forgiveness, you have to remember God's part in your story in your place in his. The very first one is this. You have to remember God's part in your story. The word remember uh, may be too, um, uh, it's not potent or strong en- enough. Toni Morrison um, has coined this word called rememory. Rememory is something different than remembering. Rememory is this, it is taking control over a past narrative to reclaim present or ongoing trauma. So you'll see this in all of her books, most specifically, Beloved, right? There's one um, author that's going to write this when he talks about memory. He's going to say, yo, memory is something that's interpersonal. Memory is the basis of our relationships. Right? We remember not just what took place with us, but something unique takes place when we remember in the presence of those who should share the same memories. Individually, memory can be very, very painful. But interpersonally, when your memories go from these individual recollections to community property, 
memory can be healing. There's one other author, Caroline Rohde, she's going to say it um, like this. She'll give an expression called narrative love, and I've got these words up here on the screen. Uh, narrative love, it's a kind of history telling that can turn estrangement into intimacy, a transformative space in which the present takes the past in a new and transforming embrace constructed for mutual healing. All right, in her book, Beloved, Toni Morrison has this main character, Setha. She's haunted, right, by the ghost of her dead daughter. And there's all these things that go on through the book. One of the most beautiful scenes that take place, I, I think it's the opening part of the book. She's sitting there with her love interest. She's a former slave, and she has all these scars on, the, on her back that she's ashamed of, and she thinks of those as marks of her pain. But there's this sweet scene where Paul D. comes and he kisses each one of those scars line by line. And what he's doing with each of those kisses is he's trying to, in her mind, rewrite the pain of her past, the thing that she's ashamed of, and show, no, no, listen, this is much more than just about your pain, something beautiful, something that links us can come as a result of this. When Joseph tells his brothers to come here, he's remembering God's part in his story. He's taken a little bit of creative license over the painful events of the past, and he's kissing each one of those lines with the sweet kisses of the sovereignty of God. Look here in verse 5. And now, don't be grieved or angry with yourselves for selling me here because God sent me ahead of you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there will be five more years without plowing or harvesting. Look, God sent me ahead of you to establish you as a remnant within this land and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Therefore, it was not you who sent me here, but God. Over and over, he's saying, God sent me, God sent me, God sent me. He's rehearsing a very real and past of offense. He doesn't let them off the hook with some trite, it's okay, it's all good, it's not that big of a deal. But he's like, no, 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 uh, no, y'all actually sold me, all right? There was this real wrong that took place, and I want to rehearse it just Let's bring us all on the same page, right? You did the selling. You got the money. I had to go and do all of the work. But as he's rehearsing all of this, he's taking creative license, offering a kind of narrative love, using the story of the past to invite them into relationship and forgiveness. He doesn't ignore the wrong. It did happen, but by remembering it. He's rehearsing the offense with the aim of relieving the offender. Look at the top of verse 5. And now, look, his first words. Don't be grieved or angry with yourselves for the act that you did. God used it. 
the most amazing thing that's taken place here is that Joseph has lived through the most frustrating type of oppression. He has gained power over the people that oppressed him, and he has not become an oppressor. That's a miracle because he remembers God's part in his story. He remembers that life has been sifted through the hands of God. Even the worst things, especially the worst things. Psalm 115.3, God sits in the heavens and does what he pleases. He has this understanding that God is the divine authorizer of all this stuff that goes on. He has allowed things to play out as they have, and it is a hard truth. And I want us to hold both of those things together because sometimes we live as when these hard things come our way, this is so hard to grasp that it can't possibly be true. Or we live and feel like because something is true, that means that it should be easy for us to grasp. No, 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 no. This is a hard truth. The fact that God is in complete, unrivaled, unabridged control, and yet something this gruesome could take place under the watchful eye of God. He didn't fall asleep and somebody snuck this past him. He was wide awake, unblinking the whole time. It's a hard truth. Not just for those of us that have gone through very real heartache, but for those of us that have gone through a very hard and real 2023. And I would say, no, I know and I recognize that it is a hard truth. But I do want you to know this truth is actually comforting when you realize you don't want the alternative. The alternative is this. Either someone is in complete control or nobody is. And if nobody is in complete control, that is a much more terrifying reality. Throw out all the promises of everything ultimately working out for good. If nobody is in complete control, then the smartest, the strongest, the most cunning, the people with the most power and resources are going to thrive, and there is no guarantee that your pain is going to be used for anything. This is why we love stories. And when I say we, I don't just mean we in the West. I mean we as humans across cultures, across nations, across time. Everybody, every culture has prevailing stories, not just as a part of their culture, but central to their culture. It's the reason why when you and I find a story in the form of a movie or a television series that we love on Netflix and the tension rises up in the first episode, we cannot sleep until we finish the whole thing. Because there's something inside of us that says, no, 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 no. This problem has to be solved. I'm not okay 
with problems not being solved, and I'm not okay with stories where the pain actually doesn't produce anything. And we sit and we want it to be resolved because inside of us, as humans, there is this longing for stories to have these closed loops. And I think the good news of this story and what we see of Joseph is that he can stand in front of the very people that did him wrong, offering forgiveness and an embrace and for them to come close because he knows that his oppressors or offenders are not the ones writing his story. God is. We take comfort in the fact that the person who has the most power in determining my destiny doesn't hate me, but loves me deeply. Church, I want you to know that your story, however bad it may seem right now, is being written by somebody that is very, very good. So do you know what your job is? You've got to rewrite or you've got to rememory your story as if God is actively involved. Don't edit him out. Um, Family Matters, it was a show that took place back in the day, right? Uh, Carl and Harriet Winslow, um, they had three children. Carl, Laura, and Judy. Um, the show went on for a number of seasons. Um, and in the later seasons, what you'll find out is that they lived as if they only had two children. Judy just disappears. All right, this is what one commentator says about this. He says this, um, when the series began, Judy was nine years old. In the series' fourth season, her character simply disappeared at the age of 13 with no explanation as to why. As the show started revolving more around Steve Urkel, the producers of the show thought that Judy was unneeded and she was more of a background character who was given very few lines. After she disappeared in the episode Mama's Wedding, the cast of the show acted as if she never existed and Harriet and Carl acted as if they only had two kids, Eddie and Laura. The last line is my favorite because it treats her like a real person. Judy was last seen walking up the stairs at home, like they put an Amber Alert out for her, right? <laughs> What's crazy is that as you watch the show, um, it is wild for them to recount stories of what took place in seasons one, two, and three, and they just do not talk about Judy. They live as if she was not involved and intricate in the story. The reason why I bring that up is that if I were to hear you talk about the most traumatic thing that ever happened to you, when was the last time that God was seen? If you were to retell the story of your life and you talk about those grudges that you've nursed, when was the last time that God was seen? For some of us, God was last seen at the altar when we walked down and we gave his life to him. And then we tell the story of the rest of our lives as if he was Judy, just uninvolved, unimportant. For some of us, the last time that God was seen 
was when he bailed us out of that thing that we said, God, if you get me out of this thing this time, I'll never do it again. But when we're in the midst of the most frustrating times, when was the last time God was seen? Church, you've got to tell your story, even the ones that you're in the middle of, as if God is involved. You give too much credit to the devil and people that have been absolutely devilish to you if you do otherwise. If we're ever going to move past our past, the first thing that we got to do is you have to remember God's part in your story. But the next thing that you need to remember is your place in his. Um, Often when people talk about these stories in the Bible where somebody goes from the bottom to the top, um, they talk about it in terms of, you know, your brokenness is going to come before your blessing, right? Or your pain is a precursor to your promotion. And people tend to think that if you alliterate something, that it makes it more true. Um, What I love about Joseph here is that all of that is true for him, but he doesn't just remember God's hand in his story. He remembers his place or position in God's story. Look here. He remembers that he's a supporting character. So even as he talks about his blessings, his promotions, what God has done, he never talks about them as if they were an end in themselves. They're always a means to an end. Look at here, verse 5. And now don't be grieved or angry with yourselves for selling me here because God sent me ahead of you, listen, to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years and there will be five more years without plowing or harvesting But God sent me ahead of you to establish you as a remnant within the land and keep you alive by a great deliverance. Over and over and over, what he's saying is, no, no, no. God really did bring me from the bottom and helped me to rise, but that wasn't the end of the story. I'm not the main character in this. The Bible, the book that you have in your hand, it is a book that is for you. It's not necessarily about you. This is a book about God and what God wants to do in the world. And at this point in the story, we are brought into the beginning of this large meta-narrative, this story of God seeing humanity fall, seeing them take themselves, and instead of being a supporting character in orbit to God, they wanted to be the center of the universe. And do you know what takes place? Everything falls apart. For centuries, humans believed that earth was the center of the universe. That earth was there and that the sun and everything else rotated around it. Um, that, that is wrong. We know that now, right? But what if that was right? In order for that to take place, earth would have to be much larger to command and orbit. And if earth was much larger, do you know what that would have to do to the sun? The sun would have to be much smaller. If earth is that large and and the sun is that small, if they trade places, the earth essentially becomes a snowball. It's dark, 
It's cold. Chaos ensues. Life shrivels up as we know it. That is an amazing and fantastic metaphor to what takes place with us spiritually when we feel like we have to be the center of the universe. If we become that big, then God becomes very small. And if God is that small, he cannot control the story that's being written. And life devolves into darkness, coldness, chaos. The Bible is a story of our God coming in as the rightful king and ruler to undo all of that. Where we find ourselves at in this story, God promised to bring a seed into the world through, the, through Eve. That lineage is being traced through this line that we're getting the story of. And right now, this line, this family, is threatened with extinction because of this famine. And what God has done is he allowed one man to be sold into slavery in order to rise up the ranks of this foreign land in order to preserve life and to keep God's story going. There is purpose in his pain. But the purpose in his pain goes far more than any promotion that he got in Egypt. He realizes that he, his story is not the central story. He is a supporting character. And by supporting character, I do not mean unimportant. I just mean not central. When you know this about yourself, you begin to live like this and you play your role. Uh, Larry David, one of the creators of Seinfeld, uh, created this show called Curb Your Enthusiasm. It's a fictionalized story of his life. And from a storytelling perspective, it is absolutely brilliant the way that he weaves things together. Uh, Larry David does something interesting when it comes to the characters in his show. Normally, if you're an actor in a show, you'll sit down and everybody gets the whole script. And everybody reads through the whole script so everybody knows how it starts, what's coming, and how it ends. Larry wanted more authentic interaction, so what he did uh, was he didn't give character scripts. He gave everybody outlines. So you make up your lines as you go. And you only get an outline for the scene that you're in. So as you watch the show, People find themselves genuinely surprised when they hear this news, and it's because that's the first time they're actually hearing the news, and they don't have any context. But they stay along, and they continue to play their role. Why? Because they've looked at the past, and they've said, all right, Larry David is a genius when it comes to authoring and writing stories. Even though I do not know how all of this is going to play out, this man has made millions, he's critically acclaimed, he has awards, I'm going to trust the genius of the author and I'm just going to play my role because I'm confident in his genius. 
I wish that some of us, in the middle of our most frustrating and surprising times, would remind ourselves, uh, I'm a supporting character in what God's trying to do here. I'm frustrated that I don't know all the scenes and how it's going to play out, but you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to trust the genius of the storyteller, and I'm going to play my role. And the way that we do that, the way that we trust the genius of God, is that we rehearse God's goodness more than we rehearse other people's offenses. We have to look back at the past and find ourselves rehearsing a steady stream of the providences of God that combat the sudden sharp bursts of people's offenses that come your way. We have to realize that as much as we want 2024 to be different, um, it's probably going to be very much like 2023. And so what we do is we don't wait until we find ourselves in need of reminders of God's grace to remind us of God's grace, but we proactively do it, right? I'm 39 years old. I still uh, play ball once a week with, you know, Rich, Kellum, and Dave and a crew of folks, and every week before I go out, um, I go into the pantry um, and I take 600 milligrams of ibuprofen, right? I pop three of them, not because I'm hurt right now, but because I know at my age, something's going to be hurt on the way back, and I just want to get the medicine into the bloodstream before the offenses take place. I want you all to know even if you cut off everybody in your life and you surround yourself with a new group of relationships, the frustrations that you are going to need to forgive are already in 2024 waiting on you. So it's best to just load yourself up with 600 milligrams of the providence of God. Get that into the bloodstream and remind yourselves of how good that God has been um, it's been said, when people show you who they are, believe them. When God shows you who he is, believe him. We tend to see the full picture in hindsight. Some of y'all may look at this story and say, John, this is great, uh, but it would be easy for me to forgive if I was at the end of all the trouble and trauma that people have caused me and I was living in a palace, comfortable, and I could look back and say it's not that big of a deal because I'm fine. It's always easier to see the goodness of God in hindsight. The reason why I bring up this story and the larger story of the Bible is to remind you of a truth that we've talked about here a thousand times, and that's this. Um, I just want you to be reminded of the fact that God's work outlives God's workers. The characters in God's story change, but God's character doesn't. After all this takes place, and God preserves his line this one time, um, Joseph dies. Another Pharaoh raises. It's up here, Exodus chapter 1, verse 6, 8. It says this, Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation eventually died. 
But the Israelites were fruitful, increased rapidly, multiplied, and became extremely numerous so that the land was filled with them. But a new king who did not know about Joseph came to power in Egypt, and he oppressed the nation, made them slaves in a worse fashion than just Joseph was. And what you find is that God intervenes in history. God sets his people free, gives them a new land. And on their journey, what you see in Exodus is that God sets his people free from Egypt in an instant. But it takes them more than 40 years to work Egypt out of them. That even after God sets them free from their external bondage, internally, there's still something that wants to be the center of the universe. And so what we as Christians believe is that there is another story that takes place in history that helps to make sense of these stories that we see here. Joseph was sent to check on his brother by his fathers. We fast forward. And we see the Lord Jesus, God in the flesh, was sent to check on his brothers and his sisters by his father. Jesus lived this life on earth, showing that he wasn't just God's ideal man, but he was man's ideal God. Jesus proved that he was the one that should have been king, not just of Israel, but of the world. And do you know what took place to God's son sent to check on his brothers? Um, He was sold for pieces of silver by his brother Judas. Joseph was sold for pieces of silver by his brother Judah. More than a coincidence, it was as if the author of this story was trying to prepare us. This eventual leader was a willing slave to all of his brothers. In John chapter 13, Jesus spends his time washing their feet. Joseph forgave his brothers with the beautiful gift of hindsight. Things already worked out for him. So you may say, it was easy to look back and say, that's water under the bridge, let's eat. Something different took place with the Lord Jesus. He didn't have the gift of hindsight as he was walking on the earth. Joseph's brothers came sneering, groveling at him for forgiveness. While the Lord Jesus was on the cross, People were hurling insults at him. He spent his time saying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. In the middle of it, he had that faith and confidence in God. Forgiveness is unfair, it hurts. It is painful. To forgive is for you to tell somebody else 
who committed or did a real wrong and offense to you, that they no longer have to pay the debt for that wrong that they did. And in some way, you're going to absorb a portion of that debt and sweep it away. It's unfair. I'm just going to say, it's unfair. It hurts. But while unforgiveness is a present relief that brings lasting hurt, true forgiveness is a present hurt that brings lasting relief. Because of what the Lord Jesus did on the cross, absorbing our offenses, I want you to hear this. We do not have to pay the debt to find ourselves back in right relationship with God. It is an unfair ending to the story. Oh, but it's one that we rejoice in. I want you to remember that our past offenses, however grave they were, however recent they were, do not have to keep you from relationship with God because of the unfair forgiveness that we have received in Jesus. So we don't have to live with them. We're not stuck. We don't have to ignore them, but we can hit them head on and talk about our pasts with the description, with the adjectives, with the ferocity that it deserves. Because in the same sentence that we talk about our past transgressions, we can talk about God's eternal mercy. Christ's life, death, and resurrection has happened to put you in the proper supporting role of this story. You have a destiny that can't be shaken. If you remember God's part in your story and your place in his, uh, then I think I'm confident that you'll be equipped to forgive and to be reminded that forgiveness is the path forward through our frustration. I'm not saying that it's easy. It is hard work that is going to require, based on the level of offense and hurt and harm that has been done to you, it will, in, it will involve deep conversation, honesty, transparency, therapy, Counseling, time. So I don't want to say that it's not hard work. I, I do want to say that it is hopeful work. You may feel like, but John, what are the steps? You didn't give me step one, step two, and step three. Um, and that's because I feel like forgiveness is an outflow of gratitude. Forgiveness is a byproduct of somebody that has been strengthened in the confidence 
that God is good and that God is writing their story. Um, this, this may have been, you know, four or five years ago in my pre-Advil uh, basketball stages. Uh, I hurt my back really bad playing ball once. And so I spent my time going to all types of doctors, getting all types of treatments on my lower back. And nothing was getting better. My back was still killing me. Um, and one day I went into the doctor and I said, yo, I've tried everything, but nothing can help my back. The smallest things, right? Just send the sharp pain through the shooting through my back. And the doctor said, um, no, no, that's because uh, you feel the symptoms in your back, but the problem is in your hamstrings. Uh, your hamstrings are weak. So your back is absorbing all of the tension. Strengthen your hamstrings, and do you know what? It's going to help your back. The reason why I say this is because you may sit back and say, I've tried everything to forgive. It's hard for me to forgive. I've tried to rehearse their pain or not talk about their pain as much. I've tried to invite them to dinner. I've tried to go out of my way to do nice things. And you're spending all your time on your back where if you strengthen the hamstrings of your gratitude to God, I think you would realize that you're better able to absorb frustrations, wrongs, or sins done to you because you're not bearing all that weight on your own. You're reminded in the middle of a story that feels very, very bad that it's being written by somebody very, very good. Rememory. God's part in your story. Your story is being written by somebody that loves you. And remember your part in his. You're not the center of this story, but that's the good news. Because the central climax and resolution of the story has already been written. The resurrection of Jesus is that son that you and I revolve around that helps us to interpret our lesser pains and frustrations to be reminded that our stories, however bad, are being written by somebody who loves us and is very, very good. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your grace towards us. We thank you for the fact that we do not live as those without hope. Father, I pray that you would help us not to minimize our pains or our frustrations, not to be so quick to ignore them and to put them in our past, I pray that you would help us to be very, very active in the way that we remember your goodness, your power, and your control. Help us to meet every temptation towards unforgiveness with a reminder of the rich ways that you've forgiven and provided and cared for us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.